0: Hello, this is Arun, the co-producer and narrator of the podcast you're just about to listen to. Thanks so much for choosing to listen to our podcast. This podcast is made with immersive audio, so get your headphones out and connect it to your device, or if you're listening to it on a great home stereo with a Bluetooth connection or a home theater system, or in the comfort of your car for that amazing immersive audio experience, we hope you like it. This is a Scrap Studio production and we at Scraps are an organization whose primary focus is to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovation as a service to the world. We take pride in bringing you the stories of people in science and history of science. If you like this series, please do search for our other podcast from Scrap Studio. The podcast is titled Scraps with a K. It's S-K-R-A-P-S, which is an interview-based podcast series focusing on many topics with expert scientists and innovators on a variety of topics like biomedical engineering, cardiac biology, medtech, tech, climate change, psychopathy, human composting, material science, artificial intelligence, venture capital, and many more. We don't just talk about the subjects We talk about the stories of the very scientists who work on these areas. If you like our work, please share it with your friends, family and acquaintances. And please talk about it over coffee, drinks and on vacation. This is the best help that you can provide us. Sunny Cyprus and the year is 1955. It was around the same time as we saw in the last episode where Aldous Huxley took a dose of crystalline mescaline. So, following on from Hefter's self-experimentation in 1897, mescaline had entered society. Mescaline, through the studies of German psychologist Beringer, had been shown to be producing psychosis. But in the late 1940s and early 1950s, the world was going through a tumultuous political change after the Second World War. Colonialism was gradually winding down. Let's take one example. Ethniki Organosis Kiprion Agonistan or EOKA, a Greek Cypriot nationalistic organization, was engaged in armed conflict with the British Army as part of their fight for independence. The Suez Canal built by the British in the previous century was going to be engulfed in a crisis potentially impacting goods transit. During the Suez Canal crisis, the British seemed to be losing steam and giving up colonies. There was also an interesting experiment that went on in an army barrack in Cyprus that was televised by British Pathé films at this time. An interesting subplot followed. Military commanders devised a training exercise that by today's standards would be considered outrageous, immoral and entirely unbelievable. It was labelled as a training exercise but was, in fact, one of the first scaled experiments using psychedelics on military personnel. Up to this point, Mescaline was the OG, the original gangster. But all of this was about to change. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class banished into exile yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders.
1: Before we go any further, let us take stock of what is happening in the rest of the world at this time. World War II had ended just a decade ago. The United Nations had been set up 10 years prior, and the world seemed to have slowly embraced a period of peace. The Cold War was starting to make waves, but it was still in its early days. The British were losing parts of their commonwealth to anti-colonial freedom struggles. Egypt and the concurrent threat to the Suez seemed to be the very first one. India was inspired by Egypt's independence and their freedom struggle was reaching a crescendo in the Indian subcontinent. In 1947, almost 25 years after Egypt's successful bid for sovereignty, India and Pakistan gained independence. Now let's fast forward eight years to 1955, back to sunny Cyprus. 40 British Marine volunteers were recruited for a training session to weed out terrorists. This was not a counterinsurgency training exercise. It was a scientific research study being conducted by the military. During the exercise, each section was led by a commander over the course of several days, a day of operations separated by days of rest in between. In order to provide controlled conditions, the troops were given the same quantity of water to drink before each day's exercise unknown to the participating soldiers, the drug was added to the water on the second day. For the sake of safety, the troops were not given any live ammunition during the exercise. So one day without, then one day with, and then, for the sake of scientific rigor, a third day, with the same amount of water, but no drugs.
2: These opening scenes are being shown to provide a composite picture of the high state of training of the men making up the troop, and also to provide a comparison with their performance on the second day when under the influence of the drug.
1: On day two of the trial, the soldiers consumed their drug-spiked water at 11 a.m. The troop commander was subsequently advised that about half a dozen terrorists were thought to be in the area. The troops moved to capture the first group of terrorists and proceeded through the open jungle. They made their way through the terrain, and everything seemed normal. Let's listen to what happened.
2: On the second day of the exercise, the troop commander was told that about half a dozen terrorists were thought to be in his troop area. This map shows the ground, under a square mile in extent, in which the exercise was to take place. The troop commander was told that the terrorists would try to clear the stores which were known to be hidden in this re-entrant. The troop commander's plan was to form a firm base at beaches. Then, number two section, was to move to the southern edge of the re-entrant by way of redwood number one section was to move to the northern end as soon as it was clear that number two section was not being opposed however number two section came under fire first from the brick hut later from redwood this in the event resulted in number one section being sent to reinforce number two section the drug was given orally to the men in the hospital ward at 11:15 and they immediately embust, arriving at the exercise area 10 minutes later. At 11.40, the first effects of the drug make their appearance. Two Marines were reported to the troop commander for insubordination, no one realizing that their behavior was due to the first effects of the drug. The drug is also beginning to affect the other men. They no longer take cover, they relax and begin to giggle.
0: Laughing <laughs> in the middle of a serious training session, that's very unarmy army like Let's take a listen to what else happened.
2: At this time, one man is more severely affected than the others, losing all contact with reality, dropping his rifle, and becoming unable to take any further part in the operation. In fact, he has to be withdrawn from the exercise a few minutes later. Meanwhile, two sections starts to advance to Redwood. The troops have lost their air of urgency, and many men are laughing. At this point, 45 minutes after administration of the drug, These men, although becoming more and more detached from the reality of their environment, are still capable of effective response to any sudden stimulus. However, their response is for limited periods only, after which they again become indecisive and lethargic in their movements.
0: The troops weren't listening to or obeying their commander's orders. The operation chief declared that the radio operator was killed by the enemy to inject some urgency. While these incidents are taking place, the troop commander is still trying to direct the action in spite of feeling nauseated and being disturbed by the mental effects produced by the drug. At 17 minutes after the administration of the drug, with one man climbing a tree, the troop commander gives up saying, I cannot do anything about this. I can't even control the man and I can take no action myself and I'm wiped out as an attacking force. Ninety minutes into the training operation, it was decided that these men are unfit to carry out an operation. And transport was called in to take them back to the headquarters. But then the soldiers were having none of this.
2: Organization of the men was made difficult by the fact that reality had become so distorted for some of them that they became unwilling and even afraid to enter the ambulance and other vehicles.
0: They arrived at the hospital at 1 p.m. that afternoon. Two hours later, at three o'clock, the effects of the drug are beginning to wear off. In the hospital ward, some of the men lie on their beds. Most of them are still laughing as they talk about their symptoms and the day's exercise.
2: At the same time, the troop commander, although feeling more capable of thinking and acting normally, is, in fact, still experiencing one of the characteristic effects of the drug. Everything he looks at appears to be patterned. While looking at the white ceiling, he describes geometrical patterns which are colored and three-dimensional. They appear to move in and out of each other. By the following morning, they were all capable of carrying out their normal duties. These final scenes, taken 48 hours after the administration of the drug, show them on the third day's exercise, when all the objectives were achieved in only three hours.
0: So what was happening here? What fiendish drug were they given? All of this was classified until a parliamentary hearing committee heard the details in 1995. The questions were focused primarily on the safety of the troops. British MPs questioned the military officers during the select committee hearing about what follow-up was made in regards to the soldiers and was there any harm that was detected. The army officer, reporting back to the select committee, said that everything was fine by the end of day two and no long-term follow-up was needed at the time. This was Operation Moneybags, where British troops were dosed without their knowledge with a drug called as lysergic acid diethylamide. What were they trying to achieve by drugging their own soldiers or by experimenting with dissolving LSD in water? It is hard to say.
1: Now let's rewind again a few years back to the year 1939. A young Swiss chemist was working industriously in his laboratory. His boss, Arthur Stoll, was one of the first people to isolate a group of compounds called indole alkaloids from plants. He had isolated the compounds from rye plants that produced grains like wheat and barley. This was a time in history when plant alkaloids were being discovered and extensively tested. Arthur Stoll knew that rye plants had alkaloids in them, but was unsure what function these alkaloids served. We will come to those plants soon, but stay with me here for a bit. If you're unsure what an indole structure is, don't worry, we've got you covered. Indole is a special heterocyclic compound with two rings, one formed by benzene with another pyrrole ring. A 5 vertice structure that has nitrogen as one of the elements instead of carbon. Tryptophan, the essential amino acid, has an indole structure and is considered an indole derivative. And tryptophan forms serotonin. Serotonin is the neurotransmitter that controls your mood. Now back to our young Swiss chemist. Arthur Stoll had tasked this young scientist, Albert Hoffman, with isolating the alkaloids in order to develop a drug for pain. There was a reason why Sandoz was chasing pain as an indication to Target. There was already a drug on the market that was a diethylamide. He just had to chemically engineer those indole alkaloids and figure out if he could make a different molecule with an alternate side chain or bonding. This is barely standard. He isolated a number of compounds and he industriously labeled them numerically. He isolated a fair bit of molecules and he labels them as LSD19, 20, 21, and so on and so forth. I'm not sure if you know this, but even today, pharmaceutical companies do not name their chemical molecules as the brand names we hear in constant rotation in cable TV commercials. In fact, naming a drug only happens when a drug enters phase three, or what everyone knows as pivotal trials. Until then, it is always the company name and the number, which signifies the order of synthesis. The chemist, Albert Hoffman, locks up the molecule as it didn't have any impact on tests he conducted. He archives the compound and goes about his work for another six years. So first, I'm going to tell you the story that the world celebrates. You ready? Switzerland was largely unaffected during World War II. So, in 1943, while trying to work on something else, Hoffman opens a vial and, while running his tests, spills some. It sticks to the surface of the counter, and while moving about carrying on his work, he accidentally ingests the drug LSD-25. Everything seems fine for a bit, but soon he starts feeling uneasy. His heart rate speeds up, and he decides he can't take it anymore, and jumps on his bicycle accompanied by his friend. What follows is the legendary bicycle trip that is widely known and even has a cult following where every year, bicycle day is celebrated on april 19th hoffman's cycle ride home was unlike any other that he had taken before the road and everything around him was transformed into a panorama of colors and geometric shapes and the 10-minute cycle ride seemed to go on for hours and now you know where the word trip came from to describe the psychedelic experience
0: Hoffman, like Hefter, was taken aback by the experience. But Hefter was at least prepared. Remember the first time Hefter thought he was going to die? But the second time, he locked himself in a dark room where he could control the colours and the vision by just opening or closing his eyes, only to be disturbed by a knock at the door. Hoffman wasn't prepared and he did not know what had hit him. This was the world's first trip that happened with lysergic acid diethylamine, LSD, or acid as it is inferred to on the street. The tiger to douse the pussycat has entered our story.
3: I think there's a possibility to, to have a psychedelic experience is inborn. These psychedelics, very similar compounds are in our brain. And all the compounds which you find in the plant kingdom, only the psychedelics are so closely related chemically to these brain factors which we already have. We speak about the paradise of childhood. When I have the vision and um, a beautiful experience as a child, it is no wonder because we have these compounds already in our brain.
0: That was the Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman, describing his LSD experience in his own words for a Canadian documentary. But can I tell you a different version of the story? The one that is not part of urban legend and one that did not involve the storybook Eureka Moment. This story is well and truly documented in the archives of the National Library of Switzerland and stems from the personal archives of Albert Hoffman. Renowned drug historian Mike Jay, who has researched the archives, paints a very different picture. In fact, Mike has a fantastic way with words. Let me read it out to you. The image of the scientist on his bicycle, pedaling unsteadily into the Technicolor future, has been printed on hundreds of thousands of acid blotters and is commemorated annually on 19th April, Bicycle Day, with parades, parties, and day-glow cycle rides through the cities across the globe. Beyond the psychedelic subculture, it's become one of the best-known eureka moments in the history of science. Eureka moments in science, however, have a tendency to compress a protracted process of discovery into a single image. Hoffman's personal archive, which has now been acquired by Bern University, reveals a more complex story. Mike dug into the archives of Hoffman's personal notes that now reside within the Berne University and it includes a written report filed three days after his acclaimed bicycle trip. On the morning of 19th April 1943, Hoffman made half a mill of compound LSD-25 and dissolved it in 10 milliliters of water and at 4.20pm he ingested 250 micrograms of the drug. In his mind, Hoffman was taking the smallest dose that he could think of. In 40 minutes, he started feeling dizzy. And then on the bicycle ride home, he reports the following.
4: I had great difficulty in speaking clearly. And my field of vision fluctuated and swam like an image in a
0: distorted mirror. Hoffman recounts dizziness, visual disturbance. The faces of those present seem vividly colored and grimacing. Powerful motor disturbances alternating with paralysis His head, body and limbs all felt heavy as if filled with metal. Cramps in the calf, hands cold and without sensation. A metallic taste on his tongue, dry and constricted throat, a feeling of suffocation, confusion alternating with clear recognition of a situation in which he felt outside himself as a neutral observer as he half crazily cried or muttered indistinctly. He came home and called his neighbor for help. His neighbor called the local physician, Walter Schilling, who came in to check Hoffman, and guess what he said. I was struck by Hoffman's motor disturbances and anxious mood, but could not find anything seriously wrong with him. Objectively, his heart action was regular, his pulse was average, his breathing calm and deep. Okay. If you read Hoffman's memoir, LSD My Problem Child, which he wrote in 1979, you might remember a very different recount. Hoffman wrote in the
4: book, Now, little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colours and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. This then moved into the kaleidoscopic patterns and coloured fountains that enveloped my gaze.
0: But there is very little detail of this trip in the original report, which instead mentions sensory distortions and described the visions as unpleasant, predominantly toxic green and blue tones. The 1943 report from Hoffman to his boss, Arthur Stoll, concludes that the symptoms felt like an overdose of an amphetamine-like compound that was marketed in Germany at the time called pervitin. If you feel betrayed a bit. And I'm sorry, scientists can be romantics too. The next morning, Hoffman described a sense of well-being and felt that the world was newly created. What followed is even more amazing and I think we need to thank Mike J for it. We're going to read you again an excerpt from the article by Mike J that is now available on his website.
1: In the next few months, Hoffman took LSD-25 three more times, at lower doses than the full throttle dose of 250 micrograms he ingested on that colorful mid-April day. On the 29th of September, Hoffman, while being posted in the army near the Italian border, took 20 micrograms of LSD. Everything seemed normal. He drank coffee and grappa, a Swiss brandy, played foosball and billiards, As the effects started kicking in, Hoffman writes in his report that
4: I withdrew almost completely into myself, my own thoughts, and went to bed with images playing across my closed eyes and warm, comfortable feelings.
1: On the 2nd of October, Hoffman took another 20 micrograms of LSD-25 and settled down in bed. Hoffman recounts and Mike presents in the article where the experience this time was not that pleasant.
4: I had disturbing dreams of a crazy mutilated woman with her arms cut off and burned out eyes. My companions thought I was insane, and I was unable to convince them that I wasn't.
1: And on Halloween Day in 1943, which was a Sunday and a day off for Hoffman, he took 30 micrograms and settled down for a siesta.
4: I felt a slight daze, shivers, nausea, a faint metallic taste in my mouth, and returned to bed feeling the need to lie still, along with some stimulation in the genital region. I entered a dozy state, in which disturbing, uncanny phantasms, partly sensual visions flitted through my mind. At 10 p.m., I got up for a biscuit and some chocolate.
1: Finally, three years later, around his birthday in January 1946, Hoffman took 30 micrograms of LSD and described that experience in his journal as the following.
4: I was struck by the beautiful colors of the tabletop, wonderful warm tones that changed from orange to blood red to purple, as the electric lamp brightened and dimmed. I had great fun with the Rorschach images, the Inkblood personality test cards, spending around half an hour absorbed in studying their abstract shapes.
1: So now, Hoffman had convinced himself and had written the report, which he maintained in his journal. After reading Hoffman's reports, His boss, Arthur Stoll, was far from convinced. Arthur's son, Werner Stoll, was a psychiatrist in Zurich, so Arthur Stoll shipped him some compound. And what did Werner do? He took it, of course. As Mike J. writes, Werner took 30 micrograms and was mesmerized by dazzling, dancing, abstract shapes and patterns. A profusion of circles, vortices, sparks, showers, crosses, and spirals in constant racing flux. Gradually, more highly organized visions also appeared. Arches, rows of arches, a sea of roofs, desert landscapes, terraces, flickering fire, starry skies, and unbelievable splendor. In fact, Warner stole described what he felt as consciously euphoric. He published a report titled Lysergic Acid Diethylamide, a fantasticum from the Ergot Group, in the journal Swiss Psychiatry. He wrote in the report that terms like kaleidoscopes and fireworks are largely inadequate to describe the effects of LSD 25. And guess who coined the term fantasticum? It was Louis Levin, the very same pharmacy professor who had a scientific feud with Arthur Hefter. Louis Levin, if you remember, was a very influential chemist and pharmacologist who used the term fantasticum to describe vision producing plants like datura, cannabis. Ayahuasca, fly agaric, and particularly the compound mescaline. Interesting how these tales are intertwined,
0: isn't it? LSD, like mescaline, has an ancient correlate. I'm currently looking at a picture of a painting that has the inscriptions Plutos, Enatos, Themeter, Eleusis. It is said that this was a painting of the Eleusinian mysteries, where a picture of what looks like a Greek individual is leaning in and taking something out of a ways, carried by another person. We know that these events happened because it is immortalized in the poems of Homer, roughly translated in English as hymns to the What's in the ways that makes it really interesting, one might ask? It is wheat stems. There are many different versions of the story. Some say that Greeks from 3000 years ago went to this location called as Eleusis a few miles outside Athens. At this location there was a congregation of the learned and the noble and here they drank a drink as a collective group. Historical recounts describe the drink Kaikyan that seemed to have properties resembling the drink in the Hindu scriptures that we spoke of earlier called Soma. Kaikyan was supposed to have been made of wheat barley laced with wine but what is really interesting was that the wheat used in this drink had gotten mildly damp and potentially housed a fungus called as ergot the location elusis and what happened there is considered part of sacred greek ritual and no one spoke of this it almost sounds like it was the first fight club of the ancient world if you remember the movie fight club What is the first rule of the Fight Club?
5: Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do
6: not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club.
0: It is really interesting at how little is known about what happened at Eleusis. And most of it is passed down through the generations orally. Seemed like this lasted for a long time, from 1500 BC to 4th century AD. Many of the best and the brightest Greeks and Romans like Plato, Sophocles, Cicero and Marcus Aurelius were part of this exclusive club. Initiates would arrive, drink a potion, have this vision of a goddess and all claim to have immortality. But in turn, they gave the world some of the most amazing things that are in vogue even today. Science, arts, literature, geometry, political system, and heck, even democracy. But why did we go from Hoffman's discovery to ancient Greece? It is because the very use of the fungi invested Kaikian was also the reason how the condition ergotism got coined. Let me tell you about my own personal experience. I had my first experience as a child when I was given wheat washed and sun-dried in the terrace of my home in India. My grandmother would then put this in a stainless steel bucket with a lid and send me off to the mill shop at the end of the street where a man would pour these wheat grains into a machine and the machine would ground and pound and pulverize it into wheat flour. This was late 1980s in India. My grandmother also taught me one interesting thing. She said that rice and wheat grains grow in the fields and can get damp and can get infested with fungus. And the symptoms of it resembled indigestion and mild anxiety. And she lovingly said, you don't want either as a child and this is stuck to me till this very day. These, if ingested in the foot, could cause nausea and in overt overdoses, even seizures. Mind you, this was my 65-year-old grandmother and she taught me how to wash them and that's how I learned that fungus-infested grains of rice or wheat would float while the good ones would sink. So the classic signs of ergotism caused by ergot toxicity was of two types, seizures and gangrenes. Both of these are caused by massive increases in the adrenergic tone that are mediated by alkaloids that the fungus makes. And there is also another historical event that took place that described the psychedelic effect. The dancing plague of 1518 in Austria, where it wasn't a case of a plague, but a dancing mania that erupted in Strasbourg, where around 400 people were thought to be euphoric, laughing and danced for days. History is littered with such examples of mind-altering substances, but none were bad. In fact, no harm was caused by anything. Of course, as with ingesting of any fungus, foot poisoning happens, but none that would cause alarm. So why, why did LSD get banned?
1: Sando, the Swiss pharmaceutical company, had no clue what to do with this molecule. Hoffman had only described the visual hallucinations, and Werner Stoll substantiated it. So typical of a pharmaceutical company at the time, they did what they could do best. I don't think this would ever fly today, both due to regulations and due to ethics. Sando put out feelers for any psychiatrist who might want to experiment with such a substance and in return for their research proposals, shipped them LSD-25 that they had formulated into an injection. Can we go back to one statement from Hoffman's 1979 memoir where he said,
4: The last thing I could have anticipated was this substance should ever come to be used, anything like a pleasure drug.
1: Well, it is time to delve deeper, don't you think? Okay, so let's leave this visual experience of psychedelic molecules like mescaline and LSD. Can you focus on one additional piece? Let's listen to Albert Hoffman describing his LSD experience to a documentary aired on Canadian national television.
3: I was walking in a beautiful May morning. Suddenly, I stopped and I had the feeling everything had changed. The wood was beautiful. Beautiful green and I had the feeling that I saw now the wood as it really is. And I had the feeling I would be included by it. I had a feeling of happiness I had never had before. And this gave me the security that if you have open eyes, you may see the world in a different way. As a, I, I mean, in the, you see it as it really is wonderful.
1: That was revelatory. How can a chemical molecule manifest in such a way that made Albert Hoffman look at the world in a completely new light? It wasn't as if he abandoned what he was doing, but he started appreciating what was around him more. Let's take a listen to another psychiatrist this time all the way on the other side of the Atlantic at Harvard University.
2: Just what is LSD,
5: and what does it do?
2: The effect is somewhat like looking through a microscope. Suddenly, uh, when you look through a microscope, you discover that there's an invisible world around you that you hadn't uh, known about before you did it. The same thing is true with a psychedelic drug. Uh, you're aware of processes that are going
3: on inside your own brain. You're aware of the um, exchange of energies that are going on between your sense organs and the energies around them that you weren't aware of before.
1: Okay, so we can figure out two things. One, it was not a sedative. And two, Hoffman saw geometric shapes and colorful patterns, just like Arthur Hefter did when he ingested mescaline. But unlike Hefter, Hoffman described a profound way in which he was changed. Around this time, schizophrenia was a prevalent psychiatric disorder. It is still a scourge today. Understanding and treating schizophrenia was critical. Remember Kirk Berenger's work on mescaline? He had mentioned that mescaline induced a type of psychotic experience and therefore used mescaline ingestion as a model for psychosis in healthy individuals, or so he thought. Humphrey Osmond, Abram Hoffer, and John Smithies also worked on this hypothesis, but had a different perspective. Rather than saying that these substances cause psychosis, they used the manifestation of symptoms as an acute in-the-moment surrogate to understand schizophrenic symptoms. As we alluded to in the last episode, the hallucinatory impact of these psychedelic substances was starting to be questioned. First in the 1930s and 40s, the same time that Kirk Berenger proposed the psychosis impact of these substances. Heinrich Kluwer, via his studies of visual acuity in monkeys that modified color perceptions that resulted in kaleidoscopic display under mescaline, was not an imagined effect, but something that happened in reality and experienced by the ingester of mescaline. And Albert Hoffman's experience, along with what Hefter felt 50 years before him, confirmed Kluwer's hypothesis.
0: Like Park Davis and its shipping of peyote buttons and peyote tincture, Sando Pharmaceuticals shipped its ampules of LSD injections to psychiatrists world over, and many, once again, used LSD as a drug understand psychosis and schizophrenia let's take a look at what happens in schizophrenia shall we symptoms of schizophrenia include hallucinations hearing or seeing things that do not exist outside of the mind delusions which are usually unusual beliefs not based in reality muddled thoughts based on hallucinations or delusions losing interest in everyday activities not caring about your personal hygiene, wanting to avoid people, including friends. So, contrary to popular belief, schizophrenia does not cause someone to be violent, and people with schizophrenia do not have a split personality.
3: No, you have no hallucinations with LSD. Hallucination is if you see something which does not exist. Just under LSD, you has you see things which is which are. Transformed and comes, uh, it is a different view, a different experience of our existence.
0: That was Albert Hoffman again describing why LSD does not produce hallucinations. So, contrary to that view, small studies with a few patients showed the beneficial impact of LSD in patients with alcohol addiction, substance abuse, and other mental health disorders. Sando Pharmaceuticals is said to have funded a majority of these studies or provided LSD as the drug was still under patent. Even interesting was the fact that some healthcare practitioners and psychiatrists started using LSD themselves to enable them, in their words, have and demonstrate higher empathy for schizophrenic patients. A lot of this work was pioneered by three psychiatrists, Humphrey Osmond, Abram Hoffer, and Duncan Blewett, in Saskatchewan and Canada.
5: LSD cha- really changed our thinking. and It had the following major changes, that once we had taken the LSD, we became much more aware of what was happening to the schizophrenic patient.
6: And it also uh, had the effect of making, taking the patient's accounts of their experience very seriously which you don't necessarily know if you hear them every day and they're always much the same. You don't really think about what, what, what's it like for that particular person.
0: Seemed like a noble thought, but should they have? Also what made LSD more appealing was the following revelation that happened with Humphrey Osman, with a patient who was being treated by him for alcoholism. In an interview for a documentary on Canadian national television, Abram Hoffer shared some very interesting information. He said that over time, they had treated around 500 patients with alcoholism. They chose alcoholism because it was easier to judge outcomes. The original idea was to use LSD as a drug. Give patients some LSD. Give them a terrible time and hoped that they would therefore not want to drink anymore. But it didn't work that way at all. Hoffer and Osman gave LSD to alcoholics a few times, five or six times according to their recollection, and noticed that it stopped working, or so they thought at the time. What happened then was a remarkable revelation. Osman was said to have said to Hoffer at the time, we can't give them this terrible time they are supposed to have. LSD triggered a self-reflective psychedelic experience. Let's listen to Humphrey Osmond himself.
6: Under uh, LSD, some of them sometimes would get the idea that perhaps they really were mistreating their their own kin. And uh, that is a powerful uh, uh, incentive to do something about it. It's not thought to be a good idea to uh, persecute your own family, unless the family liked it. And presumably, if they took a, a dim view of your drinking, they didn't like it.
1: Was a problem brewing? Should a pharmaceutical company fund studies that explored the use of the drug as a model for psychosis and also as a treatment? Or was it a case of one hypothesis of psychosis being disproved to give way to a hypothesis exploring LSD as a treatment? I will let you mull that over. Despite all of this and a lack of formal clinical trials, Sando could not figure out a clinical case for the drug and so gave it all away for research. But there are some bits of information that make us question why Sando was doing it. Let me share with you some of that information. Remember we told you that ergot fungus is like a blight on the crops, so farmers try their best not to have these fungi on the crops? But in the Emmental Valley in Switzerland, where it is slightly more humid than the rest of the country, the fungi thrived. In the 1940s, Sando was trying to systematize the production of ergot with new agricultural techniques. It is said that Sando cultivated 5,000 rye plants and selected the five most promising strains and supplied these strains to the farmers. Sando kept tight control. The farmers, it is said, had to sign a contract that prohibited them from using those grains or spores for personal use. Sando is, in fact, thought to have designed a multi needle gun to infect the rye plants with ergot fungi. And the project was approved by the Swiss government under wartime protocols for secrecy. But you might wonder why. I'll tell you. It wasn't so much for LSD synthesis. LSD synthesis was a byproduct of other drugs that Sando made. If you remember, ergotamine was a primary alkaloid that caused the adrenaline-like symptoms and was used by German physicians at childbirth to cause uterine contractions and reduce bleeding. Sando used the ergot fungus to create two drugs that became bestsellers. A drug called methergine, which was used to slow down bleeding during childbirth, and a second, hydrogen which improved circulation and brain function in the elderly. Knowing that, isn't it contradictory that the same drug that was said to be docile yet transformative? Let us explore another parallel story that was occurring around this time in Canada. Humphrey Osmond was once contacted by someone who had deep pockets and was a famous pioneer in North America among the political circles. The person we're talking about is Alfred M. Hubbard, According to HistoryLink.org, which chronicles history of the Seattle, Washington area and is a nonprofit organization. Hubbard was born to a poor Kentucky family, and his family moved from Kentucky to Idaho, where young Hubbard took immense fascination for the machinery that was being used in his dad's mining factory. Inspired by Nikola Tesla, the inventor, Hubbard claimed to have invented a fuelless engine that drew energy from the Earth's atmosphere. On December 17, 1919, a picture of young Hubbard using his fuelless engine to power a light bulb was published. Not being a reputed scientist, he approached a professor of physics at Seattle College to check his invention and provide evidence to the world. He thought that a validation of a credible source like a professor would provide credence to his claim that his discovery, I quote, promises to revolutionize the world. The professor, Reverend Smith, who was also a pastor, testified that the contraption would "...advance the whole theory and practice of electricity beyond the dreams of scientists." Hubbard was a devout Christian and is said to have used his spiritual influence on Reverend Smith. Talk about using star power to mobilize. Hubbard was a pioneer of this marketing strategy.
0: There are varying accounts of what happened, including Hubbard using his engine to successfully power boats up to a speed of 22 miles per hour. But there are also accounts where people, including inventors, who rode on the boat with him were not impressed, including an account that said, It's all Bosch, another Keely motor. He's a faker. It seems like he got some investors to invest in his company, but it didn't go well. Hubbard seemed to have jumped to his next interest, making an X-ray machine based on Willem Rohingyn's discovery in the previous decade. Hubbard, a few years later, seemed to have moved from Seattle to Pittsburgh and worked for a Radium Chemical Company. Working on radioactive elements, Hubbard started his next journey in innovation. He filed a patent claiming that he invented a spark plug made of polonium. Polonium had a half-life of 138 days and this was claimed to improve engine efficiency. It is said that this spark plug technology was licensed on a product made by one company. Middle-aged Hubbard, now after a few years in Pittsburgh, returned back to Seattle to work on radio technology. This is where the story gets more colorful. Hubbard was introduced to Roy Olmsted, who some of you know from history was referred to as the king of bootleggers during the alcohol prohibition period at this time. Hubbard is said to have aided Olmsted in building a radio communication station And technology to aid smuggling of alcohol. But in 1926 it came to public knowledge that Hubbard was in fact an FBI agent and was asked to work with Olmsted undercover as an inventor and this was halfway through his employment for Olmsted. So Hubbard was an informant for the FBI and is thought to have bargained for legal immunity in exchange for him ratting out Olmsted. So Why are we talking about internal combustion engines, an inventor-engineer with colourful history, on a podcast about psychedelics? Well, this is where the twists get deeper. Hubbard, around the Second World War, was recruited by Office of Strategic Services, a precursor to what is now known as CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. He was asked to move to British Columbia and asked to spy on an activity. According to the same website historylink.org it was to understand what was happening in British Columbia at the time. US ships were being smuggled to Vancouver in British Columbia where they were refitted and sent to England to be used as destroyers in the British navy and Hubbard would use his inventor star power to spy for the office of strategic services. The second world war had made Hubbard a millionaire. A few years after the war, Hubbard had his own fleet of airplanes, yachts and was a regular member of the yacht club in various Canadian cities. It was around 1950 that Hubbard had come across a journal known as the Hibbard Journal, a European science publication that published an article about Hoffman and LSD. The same journal also had an article by Humphrey Osman who had used mescaline, still legal at the time, in clinical studies. Hubbard's interest in the topic grew. He was hooked about these mind-altering substances. What if it gave him, a staunch Christian, a devout spiritual man, a new experience? Had
6: a religious vision that he was uh, working on behalf of the virgin mother and giving people the key to the the religious universe, you know? And he only half believed it himself. But he was the most unlikely man to be on a religious mission that you could possibly imagine.
1: He contacted Humphrey Osmond and had invited him over to the Yacht Club in Saskatchewan. Middle-aged Humphrey was blown away by the star power of the man he was meeting overawed by the posh surroundings which were stark in contrast to his role as the director of a mental hospital. Hubbard is said to have instantly hooked Osman and is said to have been Osman's subject when he guided him through an LSD experience. The two became instant friends, and Hubbard was keen to be a psychedelic researcher. Here is Humphrey Osman's recount on a documentary made for Canadian national television.
6: Now, I was not uh, interested in uh, extremely objective... Uh, evidence. He was interested in the evidence he liked. Which uh,
1: is very human and, and
6: um, understandable.
1: Duncan Blewett, the third psychiatrist who worked with Osmond and Hoffer, has a slightly frank view. He
6: lacked any uh, any sort of credence because he didn't have the, the customary training. And uh, people had just sort of poo-pooed him as a wild man. But he... Uh, he was some wild man.
1: Hubbard ahead asked Osmond to order more LSD and introduced the drug through his foundation based in Menlo Park, California, to a number of famous personalities. Osmond and Hoffer served on the foundation's board of directors, whose mission it was to further LSD therapy. It was also said that at this time, Hubbard traveled to Sando Laboratories in Basel and purchased over 10,000 doses of LSD and brought it back to the United States. We'll come to what happened to those doses in just a bit. Hubbard was said to be a close friend of Bill Wilson, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous. He is said to have informed Bill about the studies that Osman and Hoffer had conducted in alcohol addiction.
5: He has a lot of tricks up his sleeve. He gave me a little methadrine, which is a nice euphoria. So it left me with very good feelings about Al Hubbard, and uh, I was pretty convinced that I needed to go and try uh, LSD with him. So I made a date and went up to Canada. I was just astounded at what I learned, and I felt enormously free from the while wow I had before. And then I just couldn't get over such a profound learning experience, so naturally I became very enthused about it. I started talking to people about it and encouraging others and began to wonder how I could get more and more involved. We set up the foundation in Menlo Park and we had got a lot of help from Al. Uh, We formed a corporation. Uh, Hoffer and Osmond uh, were on the board of directors.
1: Hubbard invested heavily in Osmond and Hoffer and wanted to help them open psychedelic clinics. He saw himself as a psychedelic researcher and sought to develop clinics to train other psychiatrists in LSD therapy for treating alcoholism and psychological trauma. They, through Hubbard's foundation in Menlo Park, provided the drug to a number of psychiatrists who in turn provided it to their celebrity patients in California. Are you ready for the list? The list included Cary Grant, Jack Nicholson, Stanley Kubrick, Myron Stolaroff, and more. So Hubbard is politely and colloquially referred to as the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. While you might recognize the other names, Myron Stolaroff was an executive of Ampex Corporation, an early Silicon Valley company. From here, LSD is said to have become employed as a creative tool and was entrenched as the mind-opening method used by so many in Silicon Valley, including Steve Jobs.
0: It wasn't just these. Remember Aldous Huxley, the poet and the writer, and the brother of Andrew Huxley, the Nobel Prize winner. Aldous Huxley was introduced to Osmond via Hubbard, and here's a recount from Aldous Huxley's wife, Laura Archera Huxley.
3: I only met him once. It was very amusing. He came for lunch, a very, a very busy man, and he came with uh, some apparatus. The apparatus was to get uh, give himself some CO2, I think. And after lunch he took his dosage of CO2, <laughs> and then he was happy, and then he left. <laughs> That's the
1: only time I
3: met him. Very extraordinary type. Olders would be fascinated by a
0: person like that. Oh, yes. Does it make sense? It was all one big web of like-minded influencers, even before the world had Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. Their star power was used to influence some, who in turn influenced others, but none had the scientific credibility and the transfer of knowledge is all subjective. Johnny Appleseed of LSD had successfully converted the state of California. And knowingly or unknowingly, a few knowledgeable psychiatrists had a role in that. In 1959, the drug LSD came off patent and therefore could be more readily made. LSD became a street drug and it wasn't until 1967 when Lyndon Johnson signed the Drug Control Act that made LSD a Schedule One substance that it started going underground. But why was LSD made a Schedule One substance in the first place? Was it the war in Vietnam at the same time that had spurred the use of marijuana and LSD among soldiers? Or was it the use of LSD by members of the 1960s counterculture that led to anti-war demonstrations? Or was there something more sinister that involved the clandestine operations and spies? Well, the story just gets deeper and darker You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factual stories of science, scientists, and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thank Clara Bertinshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by Dr. Romeo Ratch, the scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. The Canadian documentary that you heard was Hoffman's Potion, directed by Connie Littlefield. Financial support to cover the production costs was from Cyber Inc. and a kind donor BB. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Tirunyana Samandham performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings, including interviews, are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website, psychederics.com.